DeSantis signs a six-week abortion ban. What's up with the Ukraine documents leaker? Plus, Fox News in the dock. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity, Noah Rothman, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course... Listening to a National View podcast, our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD... Ron DeSantis went there. He had signed a 15-week abortion ban either right before Dobbs or right after. I can't forget. Didn't really talk a lot about it. And everyone was like, well, maybe he's just satisfied with 15 weeks. Now he's gone uh, to six weeks. People made a big deal out of the fact that he had a private signing ceremony, tweeted about it, yes, from, from every imaginable account, but late at night and then had a speech at Liberty uh, University immediately afterwards where he didn't mention it. And there's a lot of commentary that this isn't going to be sustainable politically, uh, maybe not even in Florida and certainly not in a national race if he's the nominee. What do you make of it? Well, it's it's an interest. It's a very interesting test for everyone. Um, Florida is the most pro-choice red state in the country, uh, so a six-week ban is pushing it. I mean, as as I've said on the before in the podcast, a fifteen-week ban is basically not a ban. You know, it's it's like ninety-seven percent of abortions or more fit within that 15-week ban. A six-week ban is much more serious, and those are the kind of bans that, when states adopt them, have been driving down the rate of abortion in those states. And I think since Dobbs, we've seen, I think, a 9% decrease in abortions in the country. Um, People, I think, are obviously changing their behaviors in response uh, to the news. Um. Yeah, he's it's it's a difficult thing for him because it's been an electoral millstone around Republicans in a number of races in a number of states that Republicans want to win in a presidential election and uh Republicans have been bad at defending it. On the other hand, I don't know that this is going to kill him. I'm not as confident as all these other analysis pieces are that it's going to kill him because it does have the normal exceptions that uh, people demand in these for rape, incest, life, life of the mother, etc. Um, and also, it may help him in a pri- in a Republican primary, and um, especially when it looks like you know Donald Trump and his team are happy to be on DeSantis's left on this issue, which which is an odd thing in itself because. Donald Trump is the one who overturned Roe v. Wade and kind of owned the 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 nuclear button on this issue uh, until now. Yeah. So so Jim, we've we've had this weird, maybe not so weird when you think about where Donald Trump came from originally on abortion, but the fact he was, if he was not the most pro life president ever, right up there, you know, with with Reagan, he didn't waver on this at all. Great picks on the court leads directly to overturning Roe, and then rather than bragging and boasting about it, right, which is Donald Trump's favorite thing thing to do, besides complain that he's being treated unfairly and not getting enough credit for things, silence. Silence from, from Mar-a-Lago. And we have reports that in private meetings, Trump is like, abortion's killing us. We, we, we really got to uh, be careful about this, and you have DeSantis again, not not uh, spiking the football in the the end zone, at least not yet, but going in the the opposite direction in his action. Yeah, I, look, I think it's a, a good characterization that Trump was functionally one of America's most pro-life presidents, while perhaps not personally being a wholehearted advocate for the pro-life position. Uh, lots of questions about whether Trump may have financed an abortion at some point earlier in his life. Um, but Trump looked at this issue entirely in his usual transactional manner 
and recognized very early on that you can't be president, Republican nominee for president if you're pro-choice. Uh, Rudy Giuliani had tried this and crashed and burned a couple of years earlier. And so Trump was going to be pro-life. Similarly, in the past, Trump had you know, made various comments supporting gun control. Uh, that didn't stop him from winning the NRA endorsement in 2016. While as president, at one point, he blurted out during an Oval Office, televised Oval Office meeting with Democrats, I say, take the guns first and then go to court, uh, causing heart attacks in the you know minds of most gun owners. And you know eventually the NRA reached out to him and said, if you do this, you're not going to get reelected. And Trump backed it down from that. Um, it, now, the thing is, is that Trump may or may not need pro-lifers the way he did when he was 2016. You can make an argument that the Republican Party is if not entirely, then then a significant chunk of the Republican Party is a cult of personality built around Trump. And that while he probably won't come out and say, I think abortion is terrific, I think everybody should have one, you know, he doesn't have to be as outright and and outspoken in support of the pro-life cause as he needed to be in 2016. I I think when Trump says this thing is killing us, I think he, I I believe him. I think he really thinks that's, that's his assessment of the situation. It does also create this potential dynamic, you know, later this year and into next year, where DeSantis, having signed, you know, we've been lamenting since Roe versus Wade, where are the Republicans, since Roe versus Wade was overturned, where are the Republicans, why are they just kind of avoiding the issue or seem afraid to talk about the issue? Uh, DeSantis has made very clear, he supports a six-week ban, and with exceptions for rape and incest and health, life of the mother, and he's ready to ride or die on that position. And at least there's some clarity there. At least there's some, you know, you know where he stands. I don't know how this is going to play in a general election. I, I'm sure Biden or Harris, whoever the Democratic nominee is, is going to try to hammer him over this. Um, but it's in a Republican primary, it is conceivable that you'll have DeSantis trying to hit Trump on the right on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. And it's also conceivable you'll have Trump trying to hit DeSantis from the left on this issue, mm-hmm. arguing that it's some sort of unelectable extreme position. So, no, it just seems hard to believe. It has to be a totally different Republican Party than we've ever imagined if signing this bill, heartbeat bill, would hurt DeSantis in the, the nomination battle. I, I think it, it's going to help and certainly is going to help in, in the, the state that is going to have to start the process of uh, defeating Donald Trump if it's going to happen, which is Iowa. Yeah, it's quite possible that this doesn't become a major wedge issue in the primary. I'm, I kind of doubt it. Um, and if the contours of the debate form around what we're getting from Donald Trump, very tentatively expressing his, his um, apprehension with adopting the views that are uh, held by the evangelicals who orbited around him in 2016, then I can't imagine that we won't get a fuller debate uh, in, on the debate stage about what the Republican national position is on abortion. Um, in the wake of the Dobbs ruling, to comport with the Dobbs ruling would have been to say, this is a state's issue. This is nothing. This is, I have my moral convictions, sure. But uh, if you're a federal office seeker, um, then you should just, you know, hang back. Lindsey Graham introduced the prospect of unifying the Republican position around a 15-week ban, which kind of didn't comport with Dobbs and, and fell, landed with a thud, as perhaps it should have been. But I can't help but think they would have been Republicans would have been in a better position now if the party had a unified theory around what abortion should be. It, the decision will be made for them over the course of the news cycles that will develop in the 2024 cycle. And I don't know whether or not the Republican Party is going to settle on the idea of a six-week ban. Um, you don't have to sift through the polling to find out that nationally a 16-week ban or a six-week ban is not a popular electoral proposition. Donald Trump has a, has an animal instinct cunning that tells him that this is not an electorally viable issue. And he's not wrong insofar as there's a disparity of interest here. It's a lot like gun control, where gun control is very popular among progressives, but they don't really vote on it. But gun owners do. They absolutely vote on it. And the the slightest whiff that they get that that there's gun control legislation in the air, they'll turn out in droves and, and swamp the opposition. And abortion is like that in the opposite. This is not a Republican priority. We don't have polling that suggests Republicans are really fired up about abortion rights. And why would they? They just won a profound historic victory in the Supreme Court. They're on, they're on the, the, off, the defense, or the offense rather. Pro- progressives, by contrast, are, are very motivated by abortion issues. Um, and they, they will come out and vote on abortion issues. I think Republicans are going to have this decided for them. If there is not a unified theory on this in the platform, 
then if we have a platform, which is sort of up in the air. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So clearly you think Trump is going to lose uh, the nomination because we're going to have a platform. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that was, yeah, you're right. That was definitely an assumption in there. Uh, but so, nonetheless, yeah. there should be actually a unified theory around what this, it, it, not just leaving this to, this to the states to decide, although sovereignty in the states is very important, but having a national political theory here and and talking points around it that everybody can be on the same page about would be very helpful because mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis is not acting like he's he's 100% confident in mm-hmm. how this what the politi- political chips will fall around this. Yeah, so MBD what what, what do you make of that cuz I I think this is uh, this is obviously a crucially important question. What what is the Republican position or Republican candidates positions going to be about uh, national legislation. You know, they, they tend to fall mute on this. Tim Scott had an embarrassing moment where a CBS reporter was, was asking him, so um, you know, will you support a six-week, 15-week, whatever it is, a national level? He's just like, I'm, I'm really pro-life. And she's like, oh, so that, that means you'll support a six-week ban. And he's like, no, no, I didn't say that. I just said I'm really pro-life. And then he came back and tried to clean it up by just saying he'll pass you know, the most conservative pro-life legislation that could be plausibly that would be passed uh, by Congress, but it's 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 one thing to say I support a six-week ban in Georgia or Florida or Ohio or Iowa. It's another thing to say you want to impose it on the rest of the country. Yeah, it, it, listen, it is. I think Noah's right that there is um, no one wants to hear tailored solutions locally on this they want to hear what your moral philosophy is as a party especially because in a sense our political debates are substitutes for um you know theological debates in many ways um so yeah i think that is true um and i think republicans need to both articulate that the ideal they they need to both articulate an ideal an ideal would be we want to see abortion go away someday. We want to see it eliminated. We want every child that is conceived to be welcomed into our society. Something like that. In the meantime, when we know that the culture does not allow for that, um, you know, there are, you know, a 10-week ban, or you know, something uh, that's going to drive... Um, changes in behavior and in the way we organize ourselves and get there incrementally. I mean, I, I, I think some of this issue is going to be disrupted by technology and other changes, whether that's, um, you know, different kind forms of contraception, the increase of chemical abortions, and, and effectively, which could lead to surgical abortions becoming taboo uh, before they're even illegal um you know you're already seeing i think among uh the upper classes a kind of taboo against surgical abortion and an idea that well responsible people take care of this with emergency contraception or other earlier interventions um you know i think this uh i think there's lots more disruption to come it's not going to be a straight line Um, so so jim what do you make of the um, you know, now, now we're, we've, we're kind of passing through the phony war phase in Trump versus DeSantis, although Trump, Trump's been firing ammunition for a while into uh, some, some early uh, real skirmishing where you've had the Trump super PAC. It's kind of hard to miss these ads if you, if you watch Fox just hammering DeSantis on entitlements and on having supported privatizing Social Security and supposedly having cut, um, voted to cut Medicare when he was in the House several times. Kind of a classic Democratic ad, right, that we've been used to seeing the last 20 years or however long um, uh, run against Republicans and Trump super PAC is going to get DeSantis. Now, DeSantis' super PAC is firing back. Saying what happened to Donald Trump? You know, he he should be attacking progressives instead of attacking his fellow Republicans. Do you any any takeaways from from this early skirmishing? Well, the reason you see Trump hitting DeSantis from positions that are tra- so traditionally on the left is that as much as as much as I like to say, ah, you know, this shows that Donald Trump is no conservative, and in fact, he always was this Manhattan liberal. As much as I'd like to say that, it's more accurate just to say that Donald Trump's operating philosophy is that. Everything Donald Trump does is awesome. 
and everything everybody else does sucks. And that is the core of everything. And so whatever position he has to take, he will take in order to prove that he everything he does is awesome and everything the other guy did sucks. Um, that's, I don't think Jimmy was ever a Manhattan liberal. I think a Queens populist is more, more uh, like that. Okay. I mean, again, I don't think uh, Trump was ever a uh, – I, I, let's say – all right, populist, yes. Uh, social conservative, no. And I, admittedly, they was, those overlap. The, the Venn diagram overlaps some there, but not entirely. Um, but in the end, like, you know, Trump relishes this. Trump loves to fight. Trump loves to uh, attack and demean and mock and sneer and all that stuff. I completely understand why Ron DeSantis wants to get as much done in this session of the Florida legislature as he can. If it all goes according to plan, this is the last time he gets to work with the Florida State Legislature. After this, he announces he's running for president, and he's basically focused on that. And ideally, he'll be taking the oath of office on January 20th, 2025. Also, this is your last chance to get any accomplishments done before you start running for president. And really, this is your last chance to leave your mark on the state of Florida and the laws that it has. Um, And I think that by I think the cost of that is becoming clearer here. Uh, that you know, people say, oh, you know, Trump is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. He, he was just a guy who loves to fight, who loves to argue, who loves to go into, here's the reasons why I'm awesome and the other guy stinks. And DeSantis, for obvious reasons, wants to say, let me get my last bit of you know, actual accomplishments done here. Let me get my last bit of policy wins. Let me get my last little cases of demonstrating to people that I can get real results. And the problem is that he's down doing you know, Florida legislature stuff when Trump is running around the country uh, talking about putting fingers and stuff like that and running ads on these sorts of things. And, it, you know, I, I don't relish the food fight, no pun intended, that the uh, challenge is going to turn into, uh, that this primary is going to turn into. But clearly, you know, Trump, uh, you can't wait for it. And his, a lot of his supporters can't wait for it. And I suspect even some DeSantis supporters can't wait for, you know, the battle to be fully joined. So, Noah Rothman, next question to you. Let's double barrel it. First of all, in the 2024 presidential race, the Republican position, I know a lot depends here, but the uh, on, on circumstances and who the nominee is, but the Republican position will favor some sort of national restriction on abortion, yes or no? Yes, but that, that will evolve as a result of the debate um, or the contest uh, ongoing between Republicans on the stage and just just sort of the dynamic of one-upsmanship that will present candidates with more opportunities and more benefits from adopting a a position that has, uh, that leans less into federalism and more into whatever the uh, consensus ideal emerges from that contest. And I don't think it would be entirely bad for the Republican party either. Democrats don't know how to talk about abortion either when they're confronted with their own policies. Remember Katie Hobbs in, in Arizona was just kind of floundering when she was asked about it. And uh, Stacey Abrams decided, you know, that six weeks heartbeats are functionally background radiation from ultrasounds. That sounded ridiculous. And once <laughs> Republicans settle on a position, um, I, I think they'll be able to actually mount an effective offense. Right now they don't have a position. So MBD, will there be a national, um, uh, will Republicans favor a national restriction in the 2024 race? Not in the 2024 race, but I think eventually the dynamic um, that Noah describes will take hold. And I think I think both sides will f- will try to find a way to talk about both their ideal and the uh, um, a set of compromises they can live with, right? Because at once the American mind rebels at uh, the ideals presented by you know, full-on pro-lifers and full-on pro-choicers. But then, of course, people practically also cringe at what's implied in the compromises. So um, I, th- I think both parties will address both both sides of that uh, in the long run. I mean, what, what Dobbs does is it forces them to. Jim Garrity. Yes, and to the extent that the Republican Party has a platform, and I think they will. I mean, it might just be cut and paste from whatever's on Trump campaign's website, but it'll, it'll have something. Um, it will be a pro-life position that is more pro-life than the American consensus, and it will be a position that is probably something of a liability uh, in much of the country, including some of those swing states. But I just think that, you know, fundamentally, the Republican Party is a pro-life party, 
And we're, nothing like a little thing like the overturning of Roe versus Wade is going to get in the way of that. <laughs> so I asked this question at some point after Dobbs, and my answer was yes then. I think I'm going no now. It can just feel the movement, feel the logic of what they're saying is let the states uh, deal with it. And that, that, that might be uh, a, a prudent and acceptable way forward, just, just at least in the, the interim period here. We're actually, you know, there's a lot of progress has happened in, in the states. Not everything you would, you'd want, but um, definitely better than, than uh, we were the last 50 years. So the other barrel of the double barrel question, Noah, to you, Ron DeSantis at the moment in the conventional wisdom is being underestimated, overestimated, or estimated appropriately in terms of his 2024 strength? I mean, insofar as the conventional wisdom describes the national political press, vastly underestimated. But only because he's undeclared and he's just taking a lot of heat and not firing back. I had people spontaneously offer up, have you seen the pudding ad? The pudding ad, and these are not political people, the putting ad, I mean, maybe I risk overanalyzing this, but if your sense memory associates the kind of <laughs> queasy discomfort that you experience watching that ad with Ron DeSantis, it's not a, it's not a bad hit, even though it's really be- below the belt. Um, but Ron DeSantis' super PAC comes out, or a pro Ron DeSantis' super PAC comes out this weekend, advertises on Fox & Friends yesterday, going after um, Donald Trump on the Social Security stuff. And he says, his PAC says, what's Donald Trump talking about? He also wanted to reform Social Security. This is the dumbest possible argument we could ever be having. What we're arguing over now is who articulated the boilerplate conventional Republican position with just a little too much gusto. Um, Social Security is going insolvent in 2032, according to the trustees. This is is math. Can't get around it. And the notion here that we're just kind of incepting into the Republican electorate this idea that Social Security and Medicare and all these programs that are unfunded liabilities don't need to be reformed and you can win a political victory behind that is entirely pyrrhic and very short-sighted. MBD, we have an under on the table. Under, over, appropriate. He's being underestimated um, and, and for more reasons than Noah cites. Um, his retail politician skills are being underestimated and have been talk down to death when he's not that bad at all. Um, he is, uh, he has plenty of ammunition to go after Trump with, and there is a, a sense in the background, there is a kind of background radiation effect, and it's it's been halted by, or s- Trump has done everything to halt it and slow it down by declaring himself the winner of the 2020 election. But there is a background radiation where where Trump's balloon is slowly letting out air over time. And I think he becomes more vulnerable over time. And so time is on DeSantis' side. We got two unders, Jim Garrity. I'm going to say slightly under. And I think I might be a little less, uh, I'm not quite on the same vibe as as Noah and Michael. Um, I think... Pressure is building for that first debate when Ron DeSantis is up on that stage with Donald Trump. And if DeSantis does not come out there and smack him straight between the eyes, you know, whatever his critique is, whether it's Social Security or no, I didn't eat with putting with fingers or uh, you're a maniac who lost in 2020 and can't admit it or you're Mm -hmm. dragging the entire Republican Party, all your picks in 2022 were awful candidates, and we've got to stop nominating maniacs just because they're loyalty. I mean, like, you know, like there's a lot of there's a lot yeah, of any other options, Jim. <laughs> well, if Trump, as I say, if, if if DeSantis doesn't come out and he's a little off his game, or he's a little soft spoken, mm-hmm. or not, it's good. All, you're, I don't say you're going to see a you know rush for the exits, but I think you're going to have a whole bunch of people who put a lot of their eggs into the Ron DeSantis basket, saying, "Oh wow, ooh." How about that Tim Scott guy or whoever else is out there? I think there'll be a real panic if DeSantis does not come out and with, you know, with fire and vigor. Now, the fact we win 20, Florida by 20 points, you should be able to do that, but we will see. Yeah. So I'm also in, in under, you know, he may have been uh, uh, overestimated in the immediate aftermath of his smashing reelection victory, but I think the conventional wisdom has swung way too far 
the other way. But Jim, I totally agree with you about the importance of that first debate. And it, it doesn't have to be likable necessarily. It doesn't have to be knowledgeable. Well, no, he'll be knowledgeable. He has to be strong. And, and that means showing that he is not afraid of, of fighting with Trump. And any, any uh, blinking on that front, and it, it could really hurt him. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor. This episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. The weather is already getting warmer. Uh, so it makes it great for spending time in nature, gathering with loved ones, enjoying longer days. But you can't do any of that or you can't do it as well without a great night's sleep. So you want to wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Ball and Branch. Ball and Branch is the bedding expert making the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. Each sheet is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Ball and Branch sheets have met the standard of the Lowry household, which is not set by me, but much more importantly, set by my wife, who is the bedding expert of the Lowry household, and she does not accept any second-rate bedding, and Ball and Branch meets her test. The signature hem sheets from Ball and Branch, by the way, are a bestseller for a reason. Ball and Branch uses the highest quality 100% organic cotton threads on earth. Each sheet is slow made for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable, so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer weather. They're loved by millions of sleepers. They're so luxurious. They're loved by four U.S. presidents, and they have more than 10,000 raving reviews so people sleep better at night with ball and branch sheets get 15 percent off your first order when you use the promo code editors 15 that's editors 15 at ball and branch.com that's ball and branch b o l l a n d b r a n c h see i got through all that Dot com promo code editors 15 exclusions do apply see the site for details and please please check it out so noah rothman last week the leaker of the ukraine documents was arrested this is uh this is a weird one 21 year old kid who had access to all these uh, highly classified documents and apparently it was kind of leaking him just to impress his, his, his friends or to entertain people uh, on, these, uh, on these websites who are interested in military affairs. Yeah, this guy just seems like a goober. Like, he, he was not Bradley Manning or Reality Winner, who had some sort of a geopolitical objective or political objective that they wanted to achieve with the release of the sensitive information. He was just kind of showing off for his friends on this bizarre online platform. I'm far too old to understand the appeal of it or how any of it works. Um, but it's apparently an online gaming platform, and um, a lot of saucy language gets tossed about. And this guy just released this information um, to impress these people for some reason. And it just sat there for quite a long time um, before it was picked up and became national press, national news. Uh, there's a lot of, con you know, frustration over how this relatively low-level airman had access to this kind of intelligence. And we have these debates every time something like this happens, where you have these experts who are talk, talk to the New York Times and say, you know, there's very little to stop people from just going to the terminal where the, this is accessible to people with relative, with their clearance and just printing this stuff out. That's what uh, Reality Winner did. It's what this guy did. Um, if there was a way to resolve this, uh, a way to, to mitigate this risk, we would have done it by now. We've had enough leaks to suggest that this is, this is if it's not a reparable problem, it's not a reparable, uh, uh, something that we can, we can prevent entirely from happening uh, in the future. There's no silver bullet here. And this is not reflective on the vast majority of recruits um, in the services. We also hear, I mean, there's a New York Times, in this New York Times piece that I'm reading, quoting from, they talk about how this is really a problem of young people, and we need young people in the services and always will. Um, but we're talking about such a narrow cast of individuals. So I'm, I'm not tempted towards any big, broad, unified theory here about what type of recruit we need and what kind of psychological profile we should search for and what kind of reforms that we can do to make sure that this leak doesn't happen again. I don't know that there's a silver bullet to this sort of thing. It happens too frequently and too often. And 
the psychological profile seems associated with young people to such a degree that we can't separate it out from the prime recruitment base. Mm-hmm. So it may be an unsolvable problem. Yeah, Jim, th- this is this feels like a very 21st century leak. I mean, th- there's one thing to be a secret communist and be handing the Soviets our, our nuclear secrets. It's, it's another thing to uh, b- believe that you know the, the Iraq War was deeply unjust, or we're we're running this uh, surveillance state that's violating Americans' rights routinely, and you're going to leak uh, work with Glenn Greenwald to, to leak the documents. It's it's another just to say. You know, I, I'm really into this uh, this, <laughs> this social media platform or whatever, so I get to put some stuff on there for, for the enjoyment of everyone, so I can get some more views and more clicks and more likes. This, uh, and on Friday, I called him America's dumbest leaker, and he is. And to certain, you know, when you've got some Edward Snowden, I went back and I checked. I, was, I, I wrote something like, you know, heck of a job hiring this guy, Edward uh, NSA. Uh, but you get an ideologue. You get somebody who sees what the national security state actually does and says, oh, my God, this is terrible. I had no idea we were eavesdropping on people. Who, who knew that the NSA would do that sort of thing? And they choose to decide to let it all out, let all the secrets, and go to a country that really respects privacy and dignity and individual rights like Russia, as Edward Snowden did. Or if we have some hapless schmo and... A Russian honey trap like Anna Chapman comes along. Okay, we can see how that happens, right? But this guy, he did this for clout on Discord. This is, you know, the the, the prize that he was getting. Um, this is sad. First of all, the guy just just turned old enough to buy beer, right? That that's the you know frightening fact number one. Two, he makes Ben Shapiro look old, right? This is you know the most baby faced, uh, you know, little little twerpy guy. And he was your company IT guy. That was his job. Now, there are one, we know what's going to happen because of this. Well, it's time to go back to stovepiping intelligence, which is when, you know, you, after 9-11, people are like, oh my God, how can we not catch all these hijackers? How could we miss all these warning signs? Well, because the FBI wasn't allowed to share with the CIA and this massive intelligence community cannot share the secrets because, hey, they're secret. They're meant to be kept secret. So we make all these new changes. Okay, more intelligence sharing, more access to data. We want, we don't want this information to get stovepiped. Well, when you do that, you end up with the current circumstance where roughly 1.3 million Americans have top secret security clearance. That seems like a lot. I get it. On the other hand, you add up everybody who's in the Department of Defense, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, uh, the FBI, the Defense Intelligence Agency, all of the Pentagon, all throughout the military, uh, National Reconnaissance Office. You can go down the list. We have a whole lot of intelligence agencies and a whole lot of people who need access to that information to do their jobs, or at least they believe they need access. And all of them use computer systems, and your computer systems need the 20-something geek to figure out, hey, it's not working the way it's supposed to. You know, what we used to say, my, uh, 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 it tells me to press the, press, the, press the any key, but I can't find the any key. You know, um, that is, or, you know, my cup holder's not working. And of course, that was a, 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 DV, a CD-ROM uh, thing. Computers don't even have CD-ROM things anymore. But anyway, the just being that, like, yes, every organization runs on these young people who actually make the stuff with the wires and the lights and the blips and the bloops and all that stuff work. Um, we're never going to get beyond that sort of thing. It is utterly infuriating that we lost it under very stupid consequences. I'm also pretty annoyed with the prominent voices. Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of them. Tucker Carlson went off on one of these rants about how, ah, you know, it's another whistleblower. This guy wasn't a whistleblower. He was not, you know, trying to expose something. Now, I do think there are some significant, you know, points out of what was revealed. Some of us have been saying for a very long time that when you listen to the President of the United States talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it is happy talk. You would think everything's going hunky-dory and things are going great and we'll stand by as soon as it tapes and everybody thinks you're winning. And then you look at the intelligence assessments, and they're not. Now, here's the thing. This is the biggest secret in the world because correspondents who are over there in Kiev and over there on the front are saying, hey, the Ukrainians don't feel like they're they're winning. They feel like they're in a long, tough, ugly slog, and they're at a war in attrition. And in a war of attrition, Russia wins, Ukraine doesn't, right? So on the one hand, what he's exposing isn't the biggest secret in the world. On the other hand, it is more meaningful to see it in black and white in U.S. government documents to say, hey, the war in Ukraine is not going as well as the president makes it sound. And maybe there should be some consequences to this sort of uh, uh, widening gap between administration rhetoric and reality over there. So, MBD, let's let's put aside the illegality of the leak and, and any you know sources and method downsides ex- exposing our spies or whatever. If we put all that aside, do you think it's it's good that that we know 
what was uh, we've learned what was in, in these documents? I mean, it's good for me. I mean, it's good. It's good in the sense like I write about this stuff, so I like to know more about like, what's good, happening. Good for the country and its debate and the debate. No, no, it's not. It's no, it's not. No, it's not good. Um, it is. Um, it's not good to have this exposed. It's also not good that like. It, it, it's really not. Uh, I can't get over the fact that. A National Guardsman, Air National Guardsman, had access to the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System where he could get briefings that were meant only for top-level civilian and military people. Like, this is... This, that's actually nuts. And and I, I'm sorry, but I can set permissions on a network at home in my house, and I'm not a tech expert. Why can't the U.S. government set permissions in a way that would forbid such a junior punk from accessing this um, and literally like being able to bring the documents home to photograph them. Um, that is beyond nuts. Um, as, as for, you know, the only thing I would say that is, is a positive, if, if there's any positive at all from this leak it's it's probably the one th it, the leak highlights the one thing that I think Noah and I and and you Rich all agree on about what's being exposed in this Ukraine war, which is that the U.S. defense industrial complex needs to get into a new gear of production. Um, it, we desperately need to be spending more uh, and building more and building more faster than we are. Um, that you know, that is the the bottom line, uh, I think, in the in the leaked documents themselves, and so it gives us a chance to act on it. I hope Congress does. So, Noah, do you do you agree that that's the bottom line? And, and there's been a lot of discussion, Noah, that you know these these documents show the the war isn't going well, and we've kind of been sold a, a bill of goods by the by the Biden administration and and hawks. I may rant here, so please feel free to Go cut ahead. me off. I spent the weekend reviewing these documents so I can get a bite at this apple. I was away when this happened. Um, <laughs> Screw about your vacation. <laughs> I, frankly, yes. I'm very frustrated by my vacation. Um, <laughs> so the level of sensitivity on these bar classification, um, you know, their uh, categorization classified was, you know, notwithstanding, the level of sensitivity of this information I think is kind of dubious. Um, what, what we learned are precise targeting information that the United States is providing via uh, leaks and communications intercepts by Russia. That's not news. We knew about that. The notion here that they need new ordnance, more um, more um, artillery shells, guided artillery, that's not news. Um, what was really new in this is the lack of uh, sufficient air defense, which is vital to keep fixed-wing aircraft off of uh, Ukrainian cities. I wouldn't prejudge uh, the Kremlin and the Ministry of Defense um, uh, that they would be averse to using unguided munitions if they achieved air supremacy, or air superiority, rather, over Ukraine. They don't have that yet. Um, if they did, it would be uh, a, a, a catastrophic insofar as it would be a humanitarian disaster. But ask Curtis LeMay if you can win, an air, uh, win a war from the air. Can't. You can terror bomb. But the idea that this would somehow break Western resolve or even Ukrainian resolve strikes me as rather dubious. We did learn that Ukraine, Russian air, uh, ground forces are depleted to the point that they're roughly at 63% capability versus Ukrainians 83%. Again, where these numbers come from, I don't know. But you need ground forces to achieve a victory. Indeed, the people who are predicting that Russia is going to ultimately win this war and time is on its side lack a Russian victory. They need a Russian victory to justify that claim. They have not achieved it over the course of a three-month offensive, which hasn't broken even the first offensive position in any of the Ukrainian lines. And we're coming up on what will be an offensive. We don't know where it's going to go. A lot of speculation is that it's going to go south. Um, but they have incoming Challenger 2s, incoming Leopard 2s, incoming M1s in the fall. MiG-29s are being shaken loose from the Warsaw Pact. They already have more armored personnel carriers on the ground than Moscow. There is a potential for a breakout. And when there's a breakout, when a line is broken, it's not as though there's a little bulge. The line collapses. We saw this around Kharkiv. We saw this around um, uh, Kiev in the Kiev Offensive. A broken line around Zaporizhia collapses the line back to the Sea of Azov. And then more weapon system breakthrough. I wrote about this for the magazine that we saw um, Ukrainian support from the West 
is follows Ukrainian victories on the ground, not the other way around. It's not as though Western platforms are given and then Ukraine achieves this victory. It's this, it's this uh, series of Ukrainian victories, uh, uh, testing and then, uh, and then galvanizing Western will, and the cycle continues. I don't think you can rule that out, and I certainly wouldn't say that it's fait accompli that Russia can achieve a battlefield victory here because we have not seen one yet. So, MBD, we, we, don't, we don't want to have a huge debate on this, but uh, quick rejoinder and then we'll move on. Oh, I just, I don't think the documents, uh, the reason I didn't jump in before Noah to kind of claim victories, I don't think the documents tell you one way or another how the war is going to go or in the future, uh, or... You're not you making know, that claim, but many are, imprudently. Right. I, I Listen, I... I I still think there's evidence for what I've I've believed from for the long run, which is that, um, you know, Western resolve is limited, right? Is is severely limited in the sense of it's limited to giving Ukraine financial assistance and weapons. It's not it's not uh, open to the point of sending in NATO uh, for a full on war, whereas Russia is operating in a country on its border and is has been willing to mobilize and and disrupt put the entire russian country on a war footing and so um there are many uh, outcomes that i think that are not favorable to the west that fall into the gap of will there um so yeah i don't think you i i don't think the documents resolve the debate about the war in ukraine but um it does make the current administration's rhetoric and positioning difficult, and it does present it does present some math problems to Hawks of like, okay, how much more equipment do you need to achieve what whatever it is that you want? Is it expelling Russia from the entire territory of Ukraine, including Crimea, not including Crimea? And how are you going to do that? And with what equipment? Um, you know, we are. We don't have bottomless reserves now, unless we want to go in and operate them ourselves. So we'll leave that hanging out there. Uh, Jim Garrity, yes or no? Exit question to you first. We'll figure out a way to stop these periodic massive and damaging intelligence leaks. Yes or no? No, but I guess a lot depends on how you define the word periodic. I mean, we have about one every, once a decade. Snowden, uh, Robert Hansen, Aldrich Ames. This is part of the intelligence game. Sooner or later, one of, you know either money, ego, sex, ideology, one of those factors and one of your people who's got access to secrets is going to start spilling everything out. In this case, it was ego. And that's... The day, the day you can overcome all of that is the day you conquer the world. MBD. Uh, I mean... What do we mean by leaks? Because, <laughs> like, um, this is a leak that is, like, leaking to the public. Uh, if this Jack and Apes had access to these documents, I don't trust that any foreign power didn't have access to these documents. Uh, if, if all you have to compromise is some IT guy in the Air National Guard to get access to anything in the database. I mean, I just <laughs> like, I'm sure the Chinese have these document have had these documents for sale to whoever wants to buy them for a long time. I'm sorry. I just don't, I, what we saw is that this is just plainly not secure. And if it's not secure for an idiot, the air national guardsman, then intelligent people, adversaries, I'm sure have, have access to this stuff. It's already leaked. We are already owned. No. Uh, no. Uh, we will not be able to have 100% uh, security around uh, information, sensitive information like this. I also just don't know whether this is the most damaging, serious leak that we have. And, and the amount of attention devoted to it, as opposed to, say, um, Chinese uh, sources who leaked the personal information of uh, uh, American bureaucrats in sensitive positions in the, in the bureaucracy, got almost no attention relative to this, which is a far more damaging leak and an adversarial action in some ways. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that makes me more apprehensive than just some 
kid on uh, on a website trying to impress his friends, or even a reality winner or a, or a Bradley Manning who wanted to achieve uh, some sort of an end here. Um, this this to me is far less of a of a profound threat to American national security just by virtue of the circumstances around it. I'm also oh. going to say the answer is no. Yeah, MBD. The only thing I want to add is I do think the leak's been very damaging with S- South Korea's current government, and I don't think we should. I, I don't think we should skip over that. Um, the way that the, you know, the Biden administration is basically going around the world trying to squeeze weapons out of more people, and the way it do- it does it, uh, and the way those things were released publicly makes it difficult for, for governments like South Korea's to continue working with us the same way. Um, so uh, anyway, I just, I do think there is some damage from this week leak that is very regrettable, not just a PR um, black eye for the U.S. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. I want to tell everyone about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It's called Free the Economy. It's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control, from legalizing the gig economy to the perils of ESG and what true diversity in the workplace looks like each week. CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have honest and candid conversations about how these policies and more shape our economy and society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship were encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls. Check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. So, Jim Garrity, going to go pure uh, exit question on this topic because we're running a little long. We have, um, it was supposed to start today. It's been delayed as we speak. Maybe there'll be some uh, um, settlement. Uh, Otherwise, Fox is going to trial in Delaware and this huge defamation suit from Dominion. There's been a a huge amount of publicity around this. Obviously, a lot of interest in Fox News, a lot of hatred directed towards Fox News. Dominion has had a lot of material to work with, has spun it out in the press in a very effective way. I mean, there's basically been, I don't know, a three-month news cycle on and off, just devoted to embarrassing uh, things people wrote and texted uh, at, at Fox the exit question to you, and you've you've written about this and talked to a Fox defense lawyer, is will Fox ultimately, assuming there's no settlement, will Fox ultimately win uh, this uh, in their defense against the suit? Yes or no? I am more skeptical than I was uh, a month ago when I spoke to Paul Clement, who's representing Fox News against uh, Dominion, and we shouldn't forget the Smartmatic lawsuit, which is similar in its nature. Um Clement laid out what struck me as a pretty compelling argument that maybe not everything, but a whole lot of what Fox News had done in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election was uh, either characterized as opinion, and opinion is not under most uh, under the legal definition criteria for a defamation case. If you say somebody stinks, that's just your opinion. Defamation has to be a matter of fact, um, a, a false you know uh, assertion of fact. And uh, that everything else was covered by uh, the argument that basically Dominion would have a fair lawsuit against Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, uh, or any of the or the President Trump himself, but that not against the reporters who are asking questions of Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and fig- figures like that. Um, during the uh, summary judgment portion of this case, the judge just swatted that away in a way that was kind of surprising, went down, found, you know, in a 81-page ruling, 19 examples where figures like uh, Lou Dobbs had made statements on air that the judge rejected the notion that that was opinion. Um, Apparently this morning, Dominion and Fox are talking about a settlement. Nobody knows if there's going to be one, but I think the calculation has changed for Fox News, that this judge is not pleased and thinks that Dominion has a very strong case here. For journalism, this is very bad uh, because I think that the previous standards were as high as they were and as much as people might gripe about them. If you're a reporter and you ask a source, what do you, you know, what do you think of this? And your source says something that's defamatory. This is going to put the reporter on the hook 
or at least on the hook when the person who wants to sue has deep enough pockets and is willing to fight this in case and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I kind of feel like there's a Clement was at the time was like, no, nah, this is the, the first amendment principles are too important. I don't think you'll see settlement in this case. Obviously some things have changed and I think we're probably more likely to see a settlement because otherwise the precedent for Fox news could be really bad. So, uh, without the settlement though, it sounds like you're leaning. No, they wouldn't yeah. succeed. No. MBD. One, one weird thing about not really weird given, given where Fox is on the political spectrum and, and how the rest of the media, uh, regards the MVD, it's just like th- this. This is a case of the like major First Amendment implications and free speech implications, and and the press is all rooting <laughs> for Fox to go down w- without regard uh, of any of those uh, free speech or First Amendment implications. Which y- usually, you know, they realize that their their self interest is involved in such questions. But are you a yes or no? Well, I, I, I contest the idea that their self interest is involved. I think they are very comfortable that most moneyed interests in America have been captured by other progressives and they won't face deep-pocketed lawsuits like this. Oh, what, is Foster Freeze going to sue the left for <laughs> millions of dollars? Or, like, Michael Brennan Doherty? No. I mean, but Dominion could sue Fox for this. Um, yeah, I, I listen, I think this is, for all the reasons Jim said, I think this is bad for journalism. Um, I, I think the case is difficult and you know it would be difficult for a jury in the sense that you know i like tucker carlson never like technically like said anything that uh, uh about dominion that was terribly uh offensive or defamatory but when you leak the texts the way that dominion has to try to show like um some discrepancy between what Tucker believes privately about Trump and what, and the reputation of his show, um, you know, a jury could just decide, ugh, I don't like the way this show business works and, uh, I want to punish these people. Um, so yeah, I, anyway, it's, it's, so it's you, 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 would lean, you would lean no too. No. Yeah. No. So, so I, I, risk disagreeing um, with everybody else's assessment here of this because I find this case to be so extraordinary that it has fewer implications for journalism generally. Neutral reporting privilege and opinion privilege um, that was just swatted away by this Delaware judge are designed to protect institutions that make genuine mistakes in the moment or have a subjective assessment of uh, an event that can withstand, that reasonable people can debate upon. The preponderance of public evidence suggests that there was a strategic effort on the part of individuals in this in, in this uh, uh, institution to mislead, knowingly, willfully, and deliberately. And I don't believe every other news organization in America is similarly exposed to that. So, you, are you uh, also a no? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I just frankly don't see the kind of uh, broader implications here for for the institution of journalism generally. But you tend to think they'd lose. Fox would lose. Uh, I tend to think that Fox would lose based on the summary judgment, and I don't know why they would want to go to trial with it. Frankly, I, I can't imagine why they haven't sought to sought to um, find some sort of a settlement earlier than this. The damage has already been done to the brand. So I think they would they would definitely lose at trial. Uh, I think they'd probably win ultimately. But they they they'll they'll lose in in a trial if there is actually a trial. Let me squeeze in one last exit question on a different topic, but something that's been discussed a lot the last two weeks. MBD, the conflagration over Dylan Mulvaney has been an inflection point from which the brand, the Bud Light brand, will never recover. Yes or no? Yes, Bud Light will be discontinued someday, uh, and we'll trace it back and, to this. It, wow! It had it had no reason to. It, it, this is a beer that this is a beer that had nothing going for it except except it had a fun brand, and now that it, it has poisoned itself by just making itself an object of thinking and contention whatsoever. <laughs> it's just you're just gonna be like, all right, I'm gonna go what's for your, a what's your favorite. What's your favorite beer, MBD? 
my favorite beer. Yeah. Uh, I like, um, uh, I guess a Guinness. I mean, <laughs> okay. You know, all right. Not, not stereotypical there. <laughs> very, very, oh. separate, I mean, you know, that's what I'll go with most times, but, um, uh, anyway, but it, there are so, so many once, alternatives. Once people have to think about Bud Light. That's that's the end of Bud Light, right? The, uh, there are so many alternatives for light drinking ales that are just as cheap. Whether it's Miller or Modelo or Corona or whatever. Yeah, Modelo's been catching up. Corona and Modelo have been catching up already. And it's just like, yeah. And and I'm not saying it's just that they took a side on the left. I think just raising the intellectual temperature up. Any degree above absolute zero was the problem. <laughs> have the weird the the frog should be advertising Jim, I, your beer. We have a, we have some some video cam action going here where I, I could see Jim scribbling furiously. <laughs> but I'm going to get a Noah first, so, so Jim can work on this point some more. So Noah, will Bud Light ever recover? Uh, possibly, if only because a neighbor brought over a sixer of Bud Light this weekend just for the gag gift alone. <laughs> and many off-color jokes were made. I, irony sales might be measurable. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I don't know if Michael's wrong there that this brand could be discontinued, if only because InBev doesn't have really a huge interest in this. This is a low-risk proposition for a multinational. Their their bread is not buttered with uh, with this particular with brand. Yeah, so um, maybe possibly. Jim, but, Jim is leaning forward. <laughs> <laughs> go, Jim, yeah, go but, ahead. I, I'm just realizing this is going to be an issue in the Republican presidential primary. And we are going to hear from the frontrunner. When America was great, everybody enjoyed drinking a Bud. They enjoyed drinking a Bud Light. I didn't drink it myself. I'm an, I don't drink. But every American, red-blooded, they loved it. Now we have these Coronas, we have these Modelos, they're coming across <laughs> the, Mar- the border, and they're taking away jobs from American beer. You look at the Fast and the Furious, they're all very diverse, and they're all drinking Coronas. They could be drinking, <laughs> they could be drinking Buds. Back in, if I were president, they'd be drinking Buds. I will make that um, I, I think, yeah, the, the, this is, this is going to have... I, I think the most interesting aspect of this entire public relations disaster is whether the cultural gap between the kind of people who end up becoming director of advertiser campaigns for Fortune 500 countries, of companies, has become so different from the consumer base that the people who run these sorts of campaigns don't like their customers, <laughs> don't relate to their customers, and don't want to relate or understand or like their customers. That, you know, in the end, that head of uh, advertising for Bud Light said that this was a fratty retrograde image that she was there to, to upgrade and change and update. And what it was, lots of Americans love the nights going dilly-dilly or the what's up, guys, or right. uh, the Budweiser frogs or Spuds. Like, nobody had, okay. And the idea of like, no, no, we're going to make this the sophisticated brand of America. It's Bud Light. <laughs> That's never going to be the urban hipster brand. And, and it was just kind of this idea of like, I don't like selling to the market that already buys my product. There's this other market that I, I want to, that I'm a member of, that I relate to. And I want to sell to them, and this has backfired spectacularly. And I, I yeah, you know, I think Michael's right that you know, go down the road a decade or two. Yeah, maybe Bud Light won't be around anymore. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. That, that feels a little dire to me. I'd love love to see it happen at this point, obviously, but it's such a big, big brand. But but it was, you know, it was already in decline. Um, there, there's no reason not to order in any number of, of other, other beers. Just the, they, they don't they don't have kind of the uh, Im, imprint on American life that, that Bud Light has had for various reasons. So uh, I'll go with with a, a, a acceleration on a downward slope. But but you know things are forgotten. You know two years from now are people who aren't drinking Bud Light. Uh, because of this, still going to be not drinking Bud Light because of this. I, I'm I'm not not so sure. Um, with that, let me do a quick NR Plus plug: digital subscription at nationalreview.com. Your way around a meter paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads. Your way to dive deeper into our community, including commenting on articles, blog posts, if that's your thing, and get invited to exclusive events with our writers and editors, and most importantly, a crucial way to support our journalism. If you're not already a member, please consider signing up today and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. 
Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, the Mets have called up a prospect. Yes, Brett Batty has been called up, and um, it's exciting. I mean, it's just exciting when you have young talent in your farm system who is currently hitting 400 and slugging 500 in AAA. Um, when you see uh, any player have a 1.386 OPS in in their league, you know it's time for them to move up a league. And um, the Mets could use a shot of uh, Brett Batty with um, the player he's replacing kind of falling into a funk. And yeah, it's baseball season. And I'm trying, right. trying to get back into it again. So Jim Garrity, Culpepper, Virginia. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, my good friend Cam Edwards moved to Farmville, Virginia. Uh, Farmville is not just that app you used to play on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> there's a real town called that, and it's a couple hours away. And so we hadn't seen each other in a stretch. And he says, you know, let's, let's get together, you know, Culpepper. Uh, Cam is a good connoisseur of barbecue, and we went to Uncle Elder's family restaurant in there. First of all, the, fan, the barbecue was fantastic, but the other thing was just kind of struck by, I've driven past Culpepper a lot. I never actually go and stop into the old into the downtown. God, it is just the most charming, old-fashioned Americana, Main Street USA, uh, all kinds of neat little, you know, obviously great restaurants and cafes and coffee shops and bars and knick-knack stores and, you know, um, and it seemed thriving and I was kind of struck because this is, you know, not, uh, you're well beyond the uh, greater, you know, North DC, Northern Virginia area out there. Uh, so if you're find yourself in that corner of Virginia, stop by. Uh, the barbecue is fantastic. I grabbed some stuff from a bakery next door. My family devoured all that stuff. And just a great weekend to, uh, in a great little small town kind of out of the way. So I've never been to Culpeper, but I have a personal connection to Culpeper because my family cat, when I was uh, just, just a tot, the, uh, the first cat I can remember was named Culpeper because my dad had taught for a while at Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, not too far from, from Culpeper. So I, I love that name, brings back some nice memories, although I've never actually been in the town. I've seen the sign uh, going south on 95 from, from D.C. many, many, many a time. But, Jim, you, uh, uh, you're providing some, some extra uh, incentive for me, actually, to, to make my way to, to Culpeper at some point. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll go together with Zan. We'll stop in Fredericksburg first. She's got to go to Berg Towns, and then, then, then we'll go over to Culpeper. It's, it's all right next to Bergberg. <laughs> so, Noah, you celebrated Orthodox Easter. Sort of. Um, so my college roommate, uh, an undergrad, providentially moved in to a house about a mile from me about a month after I moved here. Neither of us had spoken or coordinated about this. Um, but we're reconnecting, and um, he uh, his family's off the boat Greek, so they celebrate Greek Easter, and they they do it up in such a way that is just so wonderful. They get an entire goat, a full on mm. goat, head and everything, oh, yeah. impale it on a spit, oh, yeah. and let that thing roast for like six hours over the coals, and it's delicious. Um, but it's really good to, you know, have the opportunity for my children to see, you know, where food comes from things <laughs> the size of our dog and looks like a dog. Um, and, but it's just fantastic and, um, a really you know, heartwarming experience. One of the best things about being raised secular and so far as there are things to be raised secular to be proud of is that you can sample a la carte everybody's religious, religious <laughs> tradition. And this one is, uh, is good to sample. I heartily recommend Orthodox Easter for the uninitiated. Awesome. So uh, I'm going to go uh, baseball, just like MBD. I'm enjoying being right about the pitch clock. Um, uh, this this is obviously something baseball needed. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, MBD, the, the Mets, who eked out yet another victory against the lowly Oakland Athletics yesterday in a game that lasted less than two hours. And there have been a number of those in the Major League uh, season so far. Uh, the games, I would still speed them up a little bit, uh, do some other things just to speed them along. But they're just much more crisper and tolerable. It's, it's taken a, My rhythm hasn't quite adjusted uh, to it. I w was uh, listening to a Yankee game the other day and uh, on the radio. I was going to the grocery store just to, to grab some quick stuff, and the Yankees were coming up in the bottom of the first. The first batter was up. I went and grabbed my stuff, came out, came out. The Yankees were still at bat. I was like, what, are there two outs? And I got a couple guys on in the first. It was the bottom of the second. It just... 
It just moves that fast. The additional stolen bases have been great. Seeing pull hitters actually pull single singles mm-hmm. uh, through the left or right side is just like brings back childhood memories. So I uh, I think it's uh, I think it's been great. With that, it's time for our editors' picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is, uh, again, for the second week in a row, Abigail Anthony, a defense of the college thesis. Um, I picked her last week on ballet. Uh, Abigail is, I don't know if she's writing for us very regularly now, but um, whenever she does, it's worth writing. And I like her defense of uh, taking on a big college project and actually making it an intellectually and even emotionally satisfying experience uh something that makes you grow up uh rather than just another chit to to fill out on the meritocratic uh runway of life jim gary what's your pick metaphors Mm -hmm. uh month after month year after year our colleague jay nordlinger writes about uh not exclusively but heavily about political prisoners human rights activists and people who should not be forgotten uh, usually being imprisoned in some of the worst hellholes in the world. And uh, he has a piece in the magazine, and it kind of gets expanded on the website today. The title is Russia Today, uh, a, discussion, a Nation Extensively Re-Sovietized. And this is very interesting. You know, like, obviously it is, is typically great, as Jay does. Um, probably more relevant than ever with the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gerskovich, uh, currently sitting in a Russian prison, unjustly accused and falsely accused of being a spy. But I just love Jay's conclusion where he says, for many years now, some of us have been accused of having, quote, Cold War nostalgia, unquote. The truth is we are capable of seeing what is right in front of us. We are realists. For many years, people have said to us, today's Russia is not the Soviet Union, you know. And I don't know if he was deliberately trying to evoke Obama's, the 80s cold. They're waiting for their foreign policy back. But I thought of that. And he concludes, the best reply to that is, does Putin know Russia is not the Soviet Union? So, well done, Jay. No, it's your pick. Another one that eluded me uh, on vacation was um, our own Charles C.W. Cook's Bud Light's not-so-inclusive marketing, talking about this, uh, the vice president of marketing who had this video that you referenced, uh, Rich, earlier, um, where she describes you know, how disgusted she is with her customer base, and the alternative should be something akin to inclusivity. But Charlie illustrates that her idea of, of what constitutes inclusivity is, is incredibly exclusive, incredibly discretionary. And very and narrow casting in a way that anybody who's actually interested in commercial incentives in a return on investment wouldn't engage in. This is not a commercial enterprise. Um, it is something very different. And Charlie put his finger on it. And everybody should read it. So my pick is by Carolyn Downey, one of our young enterprising reporters who did a piece uh, also on Bud Light, a reported piece. And what she found and wrote about is actually even though there's been a lot of f- focus on the Dylan Mulvaney thing for very good reason, this uh, general orientation towards being very pro-LGBT and all the rest of it is not new uh, for Anheuser-Busch Bush and for uh, Bud Light. It was a very uh, <coughs> a helpful addition to the debate. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Ball and Branch Sheets and the new podcast from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.